I think the greatest lesson is to do a better job of being more present. Trial is probably the only opportunity that I get to be fully and completely present in that case. I'm not worrying about the next witness. I think you mentioned that you've helped 10,000 people. We currently have 10,000 clients. You have 10,000 active cases. 10,000, yes. That's ridiculous. What are you all doing when they're no longer your clients? And what we realized is not enough. You gotta be a little bit of a, you know, wild-eyed, you know, pistol shooter who's not afraid to die, right? I mean, you have to have that. This is what I mean when I say that ego's good. I think that San Diego legal market is, is very much that. People are not afraid to share and to come together because we are truly better when we are together. In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make lawyers great can be some of the worst for running a business. At every stage of growth, running a business and practicing law can feel overwhelming. And what happens when you try to add life and family to the mix? It can feel nearly impossible. You don't have to do this alone. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRank, a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week, we hear from industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, from marketing to manifestation. Because success lies in the balance of life and law, we're here to help you tip the scales. Partner at Singleton Schreiber, Brett was recently ranked Best Lawyer of the Year in 2022 by Best Lawyers in America. His firm has recovered over $2 billion in the past decade. I love that his passion comes through in every aspect of his business, from growth to community building. Today, Brett offers insight on how to keep that small firm feel when your caseload is in the tens of thousands the tools a firm of that size uses to keep the train on the tracks, why parenting can make you a better trial attorney, and what mindfulness has to do with running a successful firm. To start things off, Brett explains how he found his partners. So it's interesting. Jerry Singleton and I had been collaborating on wildfire cases for almost a decade since the fires that had happened in San Diego. And so we kind of like knew of each other and I was ancillarily, if that's a word, involved in, in fire litigation back in the day. And then what ended up happening was one of the guys at my old shop, who was one of the founding partners, he's, you know, in his mid seventies, started having some health issues and started kind of winding it down. And I was asked to assume the mantle of taking over our role in fire litigation. And so Jerry and I just started working more collaboratively and closely and found that we had a very similar worldview. And, you know, I had, like I said, I had one adult job. I had spent 16 years at my old firm coming up as a law clerk and associate and then later as a partner. But the guys and gals who I was partners with there, several of them were in their mid seventies. I just turned 42. The next five years look very different to us. And that was no knock on any of us. That's just a consequence of the bend of the space-time continuum. <laughs> and so Jerry's a few years older than me, but, but we saw the world much the same way. We had a lot of the same goals. We really believed in coming together for, uh, you know, for all the right reasons. And, and one of the things that also made a lot of sense for us, he didn't have the serious injury single event piece that I had and needed some people with some more trial chops. And we wanted to really work and we are working to change some of the mass tort model, which is often so lawyer driven, not consumer driven. And so for all of those reasons, it just made sense. And then from there, we have just scaled up and keep adding people. So your values aligned? Our values aligned 100%. And is there one person that's responsible for hiring and finding the right talent or how does that work? It's fairly collaborative, but Jerry, is a, he's a true blue like managing partner. I mean, we joke that like he makes the People's Republic of China look like it lacks ambition. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who like dreams bigger than that dude. And, and so he's always focused on that, 
right? He is focused on the next big thing. He is looking at it at a, at a big level. And I think one of his superpowers has actually been finding people. He, he is really good at seeing talent. And I feel like I'm pretty good, but I, I will tell you, he's better. And so that has allowed us to bring in some just really good people to work in our various divisions and our various practice groups and, and then just allow them all to, you know, to thrive. I mean, we have these biweekly, we call them leadership lunches where all the various heads of, you know, various departments come together. And our last few, man, I swear, everybody's looking around the room and going, whoa, like this is some shit. Like pinch me. That's really cool. It is cool. It's really cool. And, and what's even cooler about it is we all know that, like we're just getting warmed up, right? Like I don't even feel that this rocket ship has even launched yet. We are still on the launch pad right now with all the, you know, smoke and fire and stuff, you know, coming out of the back of the boosters. But I don't think we have even started to take off yet. Jerry oversees wildfires and mass tort, again, at a pretty high level. But what we both recognized is we're not operations managers. Like we're a lot of things, but that stuff is just not the stuff that we do good. And so it was really important to both of us to build a firm. And, and I think we've been successful doing this the last couple of years of bringing people together who are uniquely good at what they do. And if you let people who are really good at what they do, do what they do, it's amazing that it tends to work out pretty well for everybody involved. So, you know, like I said, our operations people love the operation stuff. I can't stand that shit. Me neither. It's <laughs> fucking awful. It's awful. My husband's really good at operations and he handles all that. I'm just like, you can't even get me to do anything. Like, I'm like, no, that's just not what I do. But yeah, delegation is really important, specifically delegation of the things you don't want to do. Exactly. Because you're not going to do them well. No. You're not. And that's not to say that we all don't have to shovel some shit from time no, to time. you have to. Because everybody does. But what we really try to kind of focus it on and, and the way we've staffed it and the way we built it is that if 80% of the time you can do what you do well, then the 20%, you're going to shovel some shit. But that's life, right? That's, that's, that's the practice of anything. That's any business. But we have most of our people spending about 80 plus percent of their time doing the stuff that they do really well. And that they love. Absolutely. Now, do you know what his hiring process is like? Yeah. I mean, it's for, for the partner level. And that's the other thing. You know, we have both recognized the importance of middle management, right? I cannot be involved in every hiring decision, you know, for all of our various teams. But if you put really good people who you trust in those positions and you allow them the freedom to do what they do well, then again, typically good things happen. And so what we have done is I feel like we've done a really good job of like building our cabinet, you know, like you got the department of energy and the department of interior and, you know, department of defense. Like we have brought in a lot of really good people. And then we have then allowed those people to then build out their teams as they see fit. How many partners? We have seven officially. We have the kind of another council track, which is again, more of our kind of like leadership lawyers who maybe, you know, don't have a, 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 an equity interest, but all in, like I said, we've got about a dozen or so lawyers who are in what I would call kind of a leadership role. And then, you know, another almost 20 uh, who support them. How many people roll up to you directly? My nuclear team is, you know, on the single event PI is about a dozen-ish, depending upon who shows up every day. But invariably, I'm involved in a lot of the bigger cases, both in fires and in mass tort. So I work with all of those teams. And that is dozens and dozens more of people, again, depending on who shows up each day and what I'm working on. And are all the partners responsible for bringing in new business or no? Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of how we more defined our partners versus our, our kind of our council track is at the end of the day, it's got to be people who can generate business. And so, yes, they all have a role and some of them are, you know, obviously better at it than others. And some of our partners are more focused on, you know, it's not, it's not all, like I said, about hustling 
individual cases. We brought in a, a partner who's in our, our Northern California office, and she has you know decades of experience representing public entities. So when she goes and pitches a board of supervisors, you know she's really good at that. I don't know how the hell to talk to those people, right? But she knows how to talk their talk. And so, yeah, she generates business in her own way. It's just different than the way you would traditionally think about business generation in a, in a typical law firm setting. Awesome. Now, I think you mentioned that you've helped 10,000 people. We currently have 10,000 clients. You have 10,000 active cases. 10,000, yes. That's ridiculous. Yes. That's amazing. It is. Congrats. Thank you. Now, for all of your past clients, how do you stay top of mind? That's actually something that we're talking about right now that we need to do a better job of. In fact, I'm I actually one of my new additions who will come on in the next week or so is someone who we're bringing in and her official title is chief client officer, right? She is is kind of the connection between the director of kind of marketing and operations and oversees it at a very holistic level. And one of the things she has already pointed out to us is that issue. What are you all doing when they're no longer your clients? And what we realized is not enough. I think we've done a great job of building out systems and processes for our existing clients, but we're not doing well enough following up and staying in touch. I mean, you know, we have a, a newsletter that, you know, goes out, but it's not enough. And, and we need to do that better because those people can be your ambassadors. Absolutely. And, and that's a piece that I know for the kind of constant improvement vein of what we're doing that we need to do a better job of. So it's interesting because I had Jen Gore on a few weeks ago and she started doing these social media videos, right? Kind of somewhat silly and informative videos. And she said to me, you know, what was interesting about it, Maria, is that once I did them for long enough, they actually helped our referrals more than anything. So clients that, prior clients, because they started seeing her on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, she became top of mind. So one correlation that they noticed is that their referrals increased. So it really got me thinking, huh, what are some ways that our clients can stay top of mind for their past clients? So it's something I've been thinking about as well because they already trust you. Right, and that's 90% of it right there, right? And so, yeah, no, there's there's definitely, like I said, we're, we're absolutely a work in progress on that front. And we do, we got a good CRM, so like we-, we What do you use? Uh, well, it's a combination. My, my primary case management platform that I'm now moving the entire firm into is Filevine. Awesome. We love Filevine. A lot of our intake still runs in through HubSpot. and I use HubSpot. Yeah. And so that's what intake, and then we're making all of that stuff talk to each other. What about Lead Docket? You didn't look into it? I did, and uh, it didn't work. Interesting. I, I, we like the HubSpot interface better. We did try Lead Docket for a minute, and then you ultimately the had only- to shit can it only firms using HubSpot. You're probably also using it for your newsletter. Yeah, we use it for kind of all things. And so again, something we had to work to make everything talk together because we brought different groups together. We brought different practices together. So that too remains kind of work in progress, but we've made a, a tremendous you know effort to now going forward to be very intentional about it. And it's obviously key. I mean, you got to have the data, you got to have the contacts, and then it's a matter of, of what you do with it. And, and so we've, like I said, we've definitely made some steps. We've been intentional. We've been iterative in how we've approached it, but we need to do a better job. Progress, not perfection. Indeed. Yeah, that's crucial. So tell me a little bit, you have four kids, right? I do. So you're running this huge firm and you have four kids, so you're busy. Indeed. Indeed. What's, what's that like? It's fun. You know, I mean, my wife, uh, who's a psychologist by trade, but has has been a stay-at-home mama for the last 10 years because every two years we keep having children. And then after the fourth one, um, <laughs> after the fourth one, we went out and got a golden retriever puppy. Uh, oh, my because, goodness. We're she must be a saint. She is. And she works way harder than I do. Oh, I'm sure she does. Uh, um, yeah, it's not Four even- kids and a dog, that it's, sounds like it's no a joke. lot. Yeah. It's no joke. It's just the, the fact that we got here this weekend without anyone, there is a spreadsheet. There's an actual Excel spreadsheet that had to be created just so that Bubby, grandma, 
was able to like get everyone to where they need to go and like to their various events and back and forth to school and, and just to basically keep everybody alive for 48 hours. It's a heavy lift. It's a heavy lift. But what I always say is, you know, with four kids and all the stuff we got going on when it's good, it's like the greatest thing ever. When it's bad, it is a shit show of epic proportions, but on balance, it's a lot more good than it is. So it works. Talk about processes, a spreadsheet for the kids. <laughs> Dude, we've never had to do that, but they're all old enough now. And now that the world has like reopened, they all got stuff, right? There was, that was one of the interesting things about COVID, which is actually interesting from the law firm build out perspective. Like we did this during COVID and or at least started it during COVID. And that was actually one of the blessings of that time because it allowed us to like pause Right. Totally. You know, the great pause was really great for our business development side. Again, I'm usually going from trial to trial. Right. And I don't have the time to sit and, and really focus on those kind of things. And with the courthouses closed for a year, we were able to do that. And it was the same thing with my kids. I, I mean, I, you know, work from home for a year and a half. Like I got to have lunch with my kids like 95 percent of the time. And that is something that I know I will never be able to do again. And so while I recognize that that is a statement of privilege, that I was able to do those things, you know, it was a difficult time for a lot of people. And, and it's not as if every day was Disneyland <laughs> at my house during all of this, but it really gave us the opportunity to really be intentional, to really be intentional about what we do as lawyers, what we do as business owners, what we were doing as, as parents, right? And, and really just kind of be present and reevaluate. So like I said, you know, there was, there was definitely, you know, some, some lemons in all of that, but there was absolutely some lemonade to get squeezed out. Absolutely. I think it was a scary time, but it was also a special time. In a weird way, there was something, and, and I get it. I get that it was an awful time for a lot of people, but my experience was that there was some magic to it. 100%. And I remember like three months into it, I was like, okay, this isn't going away. And I don't want to come out of this and say that I didn't do something new, that I didn't become more knowledgeable, that I didn't become better. And one of the things that I did during COVID is I started working out. I'd never worked out my whole life. And now I'm addicted to it. I went this morning. Like it's been two years now. Of just, I love it. Yeah. No, I mean, we are, we are nothing but a consequence of our habits, right? And we are just simply a byproduct of what our habits are, again, personally and professionally. And so I agree. I would like to say I worked out every day during COVID. Um, I started drinking a lot for a Me period. Me too. Yeah. That but was that, a bad thing of COVID. I did pick up that awful habit. <laughs> and But then I got over it, right? Like I'm okay. getting over it. Uh, yeah, me too. But we're, you know, it's a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. We'll have a drink today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're in Vegas, come on. Um, but no, it, it's true. It was a special time and, and it was a unique time. And again, if you didn't use it as a chance to, like I said, look in the mirror step on the scale, right? Whatever, pick your metaphor, then it was an opportunity lost. And I think a lot of us, you know, who were able to do that have thankfully come out on the sunny side of the street. Absolutely. For me, I was so afraid initially. And when that fear subsided, that's when I was like, oh shit. Okay. I need to make something of this because I can't control it. Like it just is what it is. Right. But I want to ask you, has becoming a parent helped you in any way be a better trial lawyer? hundred percent. You know, what I think the greatest lesson when I, when I think back on this last decade that I have taken from, from parenting and especially raising little ones, right? So I got 11, nine, seven, four. And what you realize is one of the gifts and the, and I think one of the greatest teaching lessons that kids provide us is that they are living in a series of present moments. Right. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, like when my three-year-old, or I guess he's now four, when he throws a tantrum and has an absolute, you know, shit show of a, of a whatever, you know, throws himself on the ground and snotting and crying and all that stuff. 30 seconds later, he's moved on. Right. And that's because they live and I'm still pissed. 
right? <laughs> I, I'm still like holding on to that, you know? I'm like, God, you were such an asshole, right? But <laughs> but he he has moved on. And, and I've seen that with each of them. And it's interesting because I'm seeing that right now with my first, I guess now second grader. It's about that age that they learn days of the week in the months of the year. And actually a part of us dies when that happens because so much of our anxiety, so much of our stress in life is because we are always thinking about what has happened or what will happen. That's where we live. That's where we all we live. We live in the past or in the future. Right. And we very rarely have that moment of ohm, you know, Correct. where we are, are truly just here. And they are, and, and so I, I see it you know, as my older ones now are asking me, oh, so when do you get back? Right. You know, and, and they're not, oh, that's Sunday. Right. And so they're, they're, they think about those things yes. and that carries with it a lot of stress and anxiety just because we are now looking at time in this linear fashion. But the thing that is, I think the greatest lesson is, and that we all need to be reminded of is to do a better job of being more present. And that is what being a trial lawyer and trying cases, I think the singular reason why I've had any modicum of success in this business is that trial is probably the only opportunity that I get to be fully and completely present in that case. I'm not worrying about the next witness. I'm not worrying about the witnesses from yesterday. I'm not worrying about my closing argument. When I'm there, if I'm doing my opening, doing my close, taking on whoever, I'm there. I am all there and I'm not worried about all the rest of the stuff. And, and that's, that's where the magic happens. That's so funny you say that because I was talking to Joe Freed yesterday and we were talking about when he's in trial and I was like, do you go into flow? And he smiled and goes, oh, absolutely. And that's exactly what you're describing right now, being in flow in that moment. 100%. No, and it's, you know, not to overstate the thing, but, you know, like when you when you find that zen, right? You know, it's it's that zone, whatever, that, that flow, right? It's it's like what, you know, basketball players talk about, you know, when like the hoop looks six times bigger and the ball feels that much smaller. That's when we're like clicking on on all cylinders and it's not easy to get there, right? And 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 it's when you're there, it's temporary, right? But I think that's also kind of part of the draw, Right. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I get excited to go back into trial. Yeah, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah, there's an ego, you know, stroke. There's those things. But it's really No, an ego yeah, stroke. <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. Um, but it, no, it really gives you a chance to just to just be. One thing that I find this fascinating, and I don't know if it's because I grew up in San Diego or like am I biased, but I think a lot, not all, a lot of the San Diego lawyers. PI lawyers specifically are so amazing. And you guys seem to have such a close friendship and it seems like you guys actually like one another. Why do you think that is? And do you agree? Yes, I agree hundred percent. I think one of the reasons is because we, as I'm dressed today, we don't wear shoes. I think our barefootedness, um, our flip-floppedness unites us. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I think there's, there is a lot of truth to that. I think the San Diego legal market, cause I got cases all over and I, and I do all the state trial lawyer stuff. And so you see the different communities, right. And you see what is and isn't really a sense of community. And I think what San Diego has going for it is it is truly kind of a small town inside of a big city. It is. It's the weirdest. Thing. I can't go anywhere without running into someone. It's right. the weirdest thing in the world. It, it is. And, and so I, we all know that, right? And so we're all on that kind of loop where we're going to see each other and we're going to cross paths. I, I, I think people genuinely do believe more so there than most other and really, in fact, any other legal community that I've had any experience with. Um, and again, especially in the, the single event, you know, personal injury side of things, that there are enough cases to go around. Right? And there are. And there are. I mean, unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, enough shit happens that, you know, there's, a, there's enough to go around. And, and you don't have to be an asshole, right? Like, I, I don't but know why that bar has to be set so low, but that's really all it is. You guys are so nice. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. Like, I don't get how... So many PI lawyers out of San Diego are so nice. I mean, I'm sure you guys, if need be, would not be that nice. But day to day, you guys are so kind. I don't, 
It's so weird to me. It, no, it's a special place for for that reason. And and again, I don't know. Maybe it's the water. Maybe it's the fact that you know we're close to the beach. I, I, I seriously. But I, LA has a beach. I know, <laughs> and there's definitely a totally different vibe as far as its legal community is concerned. But no, I think there is this rising tide notion, right? That we recognize that like if one of us do well, then kind of that helps everybody. And and I I, I can't. I put it this way. I think if we could like distill that down to what that is and bottle it, we wouldn't be sitting here because we would just be selling that, you know, to lawyers everywhere. Yeah, I was going to ask, can we hand that right? Yeah. I mean, if we could figure out a way to do that and, you know, and copyright it and bottle it and sell it, it would be great. But it's just a certain, I mean, it's an overused phrase, but there's a certain synergy that exists yeah. in the San Diego community that I just think is is unique and, and special. And there are, there are a lot of great lawyers. And I think there's just, listen, there's plenty of ego, right? I mean, there's plenty of- I think you need an ego to be a trial lawyer. You do. There, it requires a certain level of kind of ego strength. I right? like my to, ego. I, I don't, I think ego has such a negative connotation, but I think it can be used- for good. hundred percent. Just have to kind of check it a little bit. Exactly. No, I, that's, and that's entirely right. And I think that, you know, despite whatever people's egos are in San Diego, as they are, like I said, in, in any of these communities, there, there is a, a genuine sense of, of people collaborating and, and working together. And we see it, you know, day in and day out. And do you think that helps you guys? A hundred percent. Because I think people realize, you know, one of the, I think, so critically important skills that we have to have is a clear and consistent understanding of our own limitations. And I think we can, you know, for instance, like I said, at my firm, we know the things that we do well and we know the things that we don't. And, and it was like we talked about earlier about bringing in people who are good at what they do. I think that San Diego legal market is, is very much that. People are not afraid to, to share and, and to come together because we are truly better when we are together, right? It's, it's the old, you know, we, we either, we either hang together, or, you know, or we will hang alone or whatever that, you know, Benjamin Franklin quote was <laughs> or whatever the heck it was. But that, that notion, right? That notion of hanging together is, is something that, that we do a lot of. And, we're seeing it now. I mean, we got this Justice HQ piece happening in San Diego. Congrats. You guys just, you opened when? When did you guys open? So the San Diego HQ opened uh, about two months ago. I was very upset. I wasn't invited to the opening. Uh, yeah, I'll have to talk to somebody else because I had nothing to do with that. Uh, it's Bob's fault. It is absolutely Simon's fault. Bob's yeah, fault. Yeah, let's just blame Bob. I'm going to blame Bob. Yeah. Deal. And it is a special place, right? And so what's cool for us is we share the same floor. So we went there and it was just this open space, you know, literally kind of an open canvas, right? It was just a blank space on a 10th floor in a building in central San Diego. And we built out the HQ space and my firm space and we share the kitchen. And it's just, it's just, it's just good vibes, you know, and, and it's just every day we, we work together. I, you know, I, I get cases from it. I put cases into it, but just, again, it's that whole kind of the wheels of the bus going round and round and everyone is, is really, you know, engaged and, and excited about it and, and really doing a lot of good work that in the end makes us better advocates for the people that we help. And that's what it's all about. Why do you think some people are so hesitant to network and be friends with their competitors? Why do they see it as if you win, I lose? Why can't they see it as a win-win? I think it's like so many things, it's just driven by, you know, fear and insecurity. And if you aren't leading with your fear and you aren't leading with your insecurity, and again, you recognize your own limitations, you realize that you can do this job better. And, and that's the piece, right? I think it goes back to that ego hamster wheel, right? That people start to become, they start to get so, you know, drunk on their own whiskey about what they are and what they can do and, and just kind of get stuck on that, that somehow if they were to bring somebody else in or, or collaborate on a case and split fees and, and split the work, that somehow they are less than. But the problem with that attitude or that mindset is they're making it about themselves. 
And you got to always remember this ain't about us. It's about the people who we represent, right? And, and if you put them first, if you put their interests first, then it becomes an easy decision to realize that bringing in others and working collaboratively with people who are really good at what they do makes everyone better and serves the client and the community that much more. Absolutely. That's an amazing, amazing way of looking at it. I've never heard it explained that way. So thanks. That's awesome. Thank you. Now, I know you're very passionate about giving back to the community. 100%. Do you think that that's, that's important just as a human or as a lawyer? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, both. Obviously, look, you know, trial lawyers could certainly use some more PR, right? You know, they could use better PR because they've, they've not exactly done themselves well. But it ain't about that, right? I mean, I got to say, there's, there are a lot of people who, you know, give back to their community and then like post it on their social media feed. Call that what it is. That's called marketing, right? That's not charity, Right. So, you know, and we've done that. I'm not going to say I, I haven't, but I'm not trying to say, look at us being charitable. Right. I recognize that that can be, you know, a marketing opportunity. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't need to be the richest guy in the cemetery. And you get to a certain point of, of comfort where you realize that, you know, you, you got to pay that forward. And so one of the things that's really been a guiding principle of, of what we're doing is, is twofold. One, we have a very active civil rights practice as well. It's not something we lead with. And candidly, it's not something we generally make a ton of money doing. But isn't it very lucrative? It can be on some of the civil rights cases, but we take some of the civil rights cases because they are principled and they are righteous, right? When, when the Black Lives Matter protests were starting a couple of years ago, we represent a lady who was shot with a rubber bullet. Now, she had a bruise and it hurt, right? But she was a peaceful protester and we sued the county. And it was interesting because I was talking with the county lawyers early on and they're like, so what do you guys want? And we're like, for you to not shoot at peaceful <laughs> protesters. <laughs> what do you think? And, and they're like, no, no, no. Like, what do you want in terms of like, like the demand? I'm like, we don't really care. Right. Like she, she got over it. Right. She got over it in a couple of weeks. You're, most people are not going to file that lawsuit. Right. But principle. it wasn't about that. It wasn't about her injury. It was about that they were just violating people's rights by firing at peaceful protesters. Yeah, so ridiculous. just follow the goddamn constitution. That's what we want you to do. And what happened? We're still in litigation actually over the case, but one of the things that they are doing now is are, you know, are changing some of their practices, right? And and they're actually instituting, you know, better rules in terms of when and how they use these quote unquote less lethal, you know, weapons on people. And so it's it's trying to enact some positive social change. And because we're thankfully successful in the other areas that we do, you know, we can do that. And again, it's not to say, you know, we've, we're doing it just out of principle. You cannot run a, a law firm entirely on principle. And we've had a couple of big hits. I mean, we had, you know, a couple of eight figure verdicts in civil rights as well. So, I mean, there are cases that come, you know, in and, and are economically viable and, and there's a return. But again, we do a lot of them because they're just the right thing to do. And that's the other piece that we're exploring right now in our expansion into New Mexico is tackling environmental racism and, and trying to hold polluters responsible for poisoning communities and, and basically destroying the drinking water. Wow. But doesn't all this also feel good? Absolutely. And, and that stuff, I mean, the, the environmental racism stuff, that we're working on now and, and the expansion, we've got several offices now in New Mexico and we're, we have several people who are managing our public entity practice and including a certain constitutional officer of New Mexico who shall remain nameless um, until he gets out of office January 1st, who's gonna come over and manage our, our Albuquerque shop. That is a true example of where you can do well by doing good. There are cities in, you know, New Mexico is an incredibly poor state and there are cities there that the drinking water, it's, it comes out of the tap like brown. This is like Flint, Michigan, and nobody is aware of it. And it's because 
the Monsantos and the Chevron Texacos and all the polluters in the world realized that New Mexico was a really great place to dump all of their shit in the ground. That's so fucked up. Completely. And in fact, it was because the government gave them a wink and a nod with Los Alamos, which is where they kept all the nuclear material. So because the government created a, basically a giant nuclear wasteland, Superfund site, Monsanto and Chevron Texaco was like, great place to go store our petroleum products in the ground too, right? It, it, ain't, it ain't like it's a nuclear isotope. So they did that for decades. And then not surprisingly, when the EPA some decades ago was like, you know, keeping petroleum products in the ground next to groundwater isn't such a great idea. They proceeded to remove it. And when they did, not surprisingly, they didn't do a very good job. And so as a result, these communities have suffered. And that's what we're doing with the public entity piece is going to these communities and working with them to help them to remediate these conditions and to hold the polluters responsible. And it, again, it's doing well by doing good because, I mean, we're literally using the civil justice system to heal the earth. And not for nothing, I mean, as the trial lawyer, like, let me try one of those cases, right? I'm always, whether it's a car wreck or a, a product case or a, 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 you know, a, a medical malpractice case, we're always trying to paint the conduct of this doctor or this distracted driver as being something sinister. And it's hard because jurors, they feel bad for distracted grannies and they feel bad for doctors. And so we're up against that. This shit is evil. Like, this is like Mr. Burns, like, <laughs> Oh, no, you're ready. You lit up. Oh, dude. You're I, ready. I, I mean, I hope. I hope that sometime in the next couple of years, one of these groups is stupid enough to not pay a giant sum of money to fix these communities and to allow us to try one of these cases because it's, it's going to be on. This is what I mean when I say that ego's good. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you got to be a little bit of a, you know, wild-eyed, you know, pistol shooter who's not afraid to die, right? I mean, you have to have that. You got to have that. You have to have a certain risk tolerance to you to do this. Like I said, to scale and run a 150-person, you know, law firm with the gigantic overhead that we have where 99.9% .9 of our business is on a contingent fee is somewhat insane, right? You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on discomfort and how like you should lean into it and how important it is. Now, how are you getting cases? So from my practice on the single event side, it's primarily a lot of lawyer, you know, driven referrals. A lot of my trial cases are, again, joint ventures and, and collaboration. In the mass tort and fire world, it's a combination. It's a combination of marketing. It's, it's a combination of, you know, some lead generation, but we don't do a ton of, of lead gen. And then what ends up happening when you have this very large denominator of clients that organically creates a pretty healthy stream of business because there are 10,000 people who you represent. And if they or someone they love and care about, if you treat them well, when something bad happens to anybody else they know, it's, quote, call my lawyer. But that's the key, if you treat them well. And that doesn't just mean, you know, do you get a great settlement or do you get a great verdict or anything like that? Are you responsive? Is your staff friendly? These are basic things that, I mean, I listen to a lot of intake where I have, and everybody thinks that they have great intake, but 99 times out of 100, they don't. Right. And so one of the things that we did in building this out is I also have uh, one of my lawyers who's kind of managing overseas our intake. He's really kind of our closer. And we, before he we went to law school, I went to law school with him 20 years ago. And before that, he was the number two BMW salesman in North America. And before that, he was the number one Ferrari salesman in North America. And the guy just gets it, right? He understands how to talk to people. He understands how, and he's, he's just as good when he's talking to some kid who crashed his motorcycle in Santee as when he's talking to a guy who has a 500 acre avocado grove that burned down in Shasta County. And, and you gotta be there, but you can't just have someone who talks the talk. 
you then got to back it up by walking that walk. And so that's, again, one of the, one of the COVID blessings to take this back to where we started was building out systems so that we appreciate the life cycle of the client experience from soup to nuts and, and being there and having those touches and having those drips and having those contacts and doing all of those things. Again, those processes that are so often overlooked because it is a service industry first and foremost. And if you ever lose sight of that, and unfortunately you see a lot of the volume mills that do, they look at it as, as a people are like a widget. And if you treat them like widgets, it shows. And, and if you don't, it also shows. But you have a large firm. So how do you make sure that you keep that level of, like you said, small firm, you know, feel, customer service as you grow in scale? How do you not lose that? That's the other thing that like, if we could bottle it and sell it, we wouldn't be sitting here. That's probably- I hope we would be sitting here talking about that. Talking about that maybe. (laughs) If if, if there was something that we could just distill down and that it was like a paint by numbers, then obviously everybody could do it, right? But it's not. And, And I think one of the ways that we've managed to do that is by never sitting on our laurels, right? Like we, despite the fact, I think one of the cool things about creating this firm with- a number of different people with different practice groups and different experiences. All of us, before we came together, like we were all good. Like we didn't need each other. But what has been cool is we've recognized that just because we had all done something a certain way in the past doesn't mean it was always the right way to do it. And so this notion of constant improvement is something that we're always, always talking about and always thinking about. Because I think that's where people get into trouble as they scale is because they believe, well, that's just the system and we're going to keep that system in perpetuity. Yes. And forget it. Yeah. You can't, you can't set it and forget it. No. You got to always be looking at it. And again, it's another reason why having people who are there looking at those processes, right? Like in a regular business, like if we were making widgets, your, your, <laughs> your COO or your people, they want to know, okay, is the machine that produces the mold for the widget close enough to the assembly line that spits out the widget that gets within certain numbers of feet or inches, you know, to, to where it gets packaged. Absolutely. Right. That's what people who do manufacturing are always thinking about finding those efficiencies and finding those improvements. A law firm is not much different no. when you look at it through that lens. But that's the thing. A lot of firms don't look at it that way. And I feel like some lawyers just think it's like, it's beneath them, right? Like they went to law school, they're a lawyer, they're not a business owner. That's not the way that they see it, but it is a business. A hundred percent. And I think you can get away with that when it's just Joe Schmo and Associates, right? Or Jane totally. Schmo and Associates. If it's just you and a couple people, you can fuck that up as many ways as you want, right? But that's going to be on you. When when you take on this level, when you take on this scale, when you do it at this, you know, at the way we're doing it, you have to be always seeing it for what it is. And again, knowing your limitations. Do you guys work remote? We have a ton of remote workers. I mean, really? I got 5,000 spe- I got 5,000 feet, but I couldn't fit 120 people in there. So, I would say on any given day, like 20 or 30 are actually there and we have a couple of other offices. So a few people show up in New Mexico, a few people show up in SAC. But other than that, I would say even to this day, somewhere to the tune of about 75% of our people, um, 60 to 75% are almost exclusively remote. And do you think that that impacts our productivity negatively or positively? No, as long as you've made the tech investment, as long as you've made their ability and and you support them in that way. And so we've done that, right? We've, We've built out the tech backend so that it works well for people to be able to do it anywhere. And, and then giving them the technology in their homes and the screens and the laptops and the phones and all the stuff. I wouldn't say it's made us less efficient. It's made us more efficient, right? It was inefficient as hell. Like what kind of savages were we that we would literally spend, like I'd have people who would spend hours a day in a car, right? Like I'd rather them spend hours a day at home getting shit done. And, and both for us as well as for themselves, 
right? And that is the thing that that keeps people coming back for more, right? That's that's so important. And again, clear and consistent lines of communication, you can make that work. So I don't care if somebody needs to go take their kid to school or run to the grocery store. I agree, a thousand percent. You know, the nine to five is a very 20th century way of running a business. What are some of the... You mentioned technology. What are some of the things you've implemented? What tools do you guys use? Well, you know, for just internal messaging, we run a lot of stuff through Teams. Like I said, Filevine for case management has been key. And then there's a backend side of it that we can, you know, see kind of productivity. Now, do I have the ability to go in and see what everyone is doing? Yeah. Do I do it? Not really. You know, it's there, right? You can see it. But again, so long as you build it out, you you and you have the right people in place, it becomes apparent if someone is totally fucking off. Oh, absolutely. So, and then you can confirm using that. Exactly. But there's no need to. The, no, I, I I log into the back end. It's called Periscope, and it's like a boop 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 like a Periscope. Yeah, I've heard of it. And and it allows you to do a lot of things. There's a lot of like I said, one of the things that we dug about that system, and why one of the reasons we went with it is because the back end analytics are insane. Right, you can really drill down super deep into any kind of issues, both with respect to the types of cases, who's working the cases, the productivity on the cases, dollars in, dollars out, you name it. You can you can run a lot of a lot of good analytics. But I think, you know, most importantly is it just allows us to, you know, once a month or every couple of months to kind of just check in. You know, I feel like everything's good over there, but you know, trust but verify. Yes. And um, and then if you give the people access to all the technology that they need so that they're able to basically set up their own little mini offices at home, then, you know. What do you use for phones? Right now it's Ring Central, which just pushes out through everybody's cell phones for the most part. Um, we're not 100% in love with it. So Check we're, out Zoom. Okay. So it also has a phone system is what we use. Really? Um, Aliyah Wad told me about it, CEO lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and we love it. Really? It yeah. pushes out to the phone. You can answer from the computer. You don't have to have the, the whole virtual Zoom, like, you know, video cam. It could just be a phone. Really? And it's not expensive. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're we're definitely, I think, I don't think we're going to live with Ring Central forever. But again, it's gotten us this far, but always looking to- Check it out. Check out new ways and better <laughs> opportunities. Now, one last question. What's the book that had the- largest impact on your life, either personal or business? Well, I can tell you what I'm, one book that I'm reading right now that is absolutely kind of amazing. And I won't say it's the greatest book I've ever read, but it has been really just uh, uh, causing me to kind of rethink what I do is Breath. Oh my God! Yes, the, the yellow book. Yes. The yellow, well, I, I don't know if you're yeah, reading the lost, it. No, I'm. I'm. I'm reading. I'm very much a like. I need to hold a book. Okay. I'm not. A I haven't guy. read it, but it is on my to read book, and I've heard so much about it. It is about finding the lost art of breathing. And I'm scared to read it because I don't breathe. No, <laughs> you do, but you don't breathe well. I know, and, and none I know of I us don't. do. I know that I don't. And I think why it's a, a kind of a perfect way to, to end this is because what I have taken from it is by being more thoughtful about how I breathe. I've actually had a number of people, I read it, like I've been reading it for like a month. I've read a couple other books in the process, but like- I'm I've, sure it's hard to read. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I find time, right? But I, you know, again- No, you I need gotta, that book in particular. Oh, that book. Yeah, 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 no, it is. It, it's, it has some interesting anecdotes and things, but it's not a book that you have to read like continuously, like I've read like three other books while I'm reading it because you can kind of pick it up. But I have had several people in my circle say to me, you seem a lot calmer. No. I shit you not. And I believe it's because I am being more aware of my breath. And I do it, you know, whether it's through meditation and then just through regular thoughtful breathing. Here was the thing that blew me away the most about it. So in a perfect world to find this kind of ohm, you know, sense of, of self and oneness, we should be breathing five to six times um, per minute. So it's about five seconds in and five seconds out, which is a long breath, right? To go in for five, out for five. What's fascinating is if you go back in time to every religious tradition, 
from Om Mani Padme Om to praying the rosary, what you are doing is forcing yourself to breathe out for five and to breathe in for five. And that is the thing that connects it. And what I think that really tells us about prayer, it doesn't matter what you're saying, it matters how you're breathing. And when you are being that intentional about your breath, you will find yourself open to being connected to the world around you. And more present. Thousand percent. I lied, another question. What do you do to, I assume you have a stressful life. Maybe you don't see it that way, but I have to assume that it's stressful. What do you do to de-stress? I mean, my kids are the primary way, right? What? Being, That's my source of stress. Th they can absolutely be a total source of stress, but hanging with them and doing stuff with them is definitely one of the ways, like, I don't care if I'm in trial, as long as I'm in town, I try to get home by six and like six to eight are their hours and I don't care what else is going on. And I check that shit at the door, you know, and then they're all still little, so they go to bed early so I can get back to it after. That's one. And then, I mean, exercise is, is key. What do you do? Um, well, you know, I do a number of things, but one of them uh, that was more, like I said, a COVID thing is, is the old Peloton. And I got to tell you, you know, uh, Robin Arzan and some of those Peloton instructors, they've been like my spirit animals for the last couple of years. And so combination of like kind of the hit stuff and, you know, and some cardio. I also live, you know, close to the beach in San Diego. So there's so many great ways to just be outside. And so those are the things that I have to do so that I can do everything else. Because if I don't do those things... I'm less than, I'm less than as a person, I'm less than as a lawyer, I'm less than as a father, and I'm less, there as, less than as a husband. And so if I'm not doing that stuff at least three, four, five days a week, I'm, I'm not my best self. Building a great firm starts with you. Care for yourself mentally and physically, and hire a team that you can trust to implement your vision Establish processes that replicate incredible client experiences. As you grow, they will need to change. Evaluate them often and change them when needed. Thank you so much to Brett Schreiber at Singleton Schreiber for everything he shared today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy, president of LawRank. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity, and built a thriving purpose-driven business in the process. Yeah.